0: So on just this past Tuesday night, I was out at the concert on the Common, the Stewards are there, Terry was there. We we're listening to a great Beatles cover band, and I was volunteering at the popcorn concession. Hot oil popcorn, it's awesome. A man came up to buy a bag of popcorn and he had a Vietnam vet hat on. You've probably seen those around, right? And as I handed him the bag, I took that opportunity to look him in the face, look him right in the eye, shake his hand and say, thank you for serving our country. And as he looked back at me, his face had this dejected kind of look on it. And he said, sure thing. That was a long time ago, and nobody remembers. And I was so saddened by that, but I also realized, it's true, right? People all too quickly forget that freedom isn't free. America, what do we say? It's the land of the free in the home of the brave, right? And I'm personally grateful to have been born here and to have lived at a time where that freedom that I enjoy is relatively secure and without question. But we have to remember that that freedom didn't come free. It was costly, right? Freedom comes through costly sacrifice and a sustained commitment to keep it that way. Why? Because ours is a world that doesn't stay free, it trends towards opposition. Just when you think you're free, there's another enemy that pokes its ugly head. Today, our passage in Psalm 129 reflects on freedom. And specifically, the psalmist is reflecting on having gone through some severe affliction and having gone through it and experienced deliverance. Now most often, when we think about freedom, we think about it in contrast to restriction, and opposition, and maybe even enslavement, which is certainly true. And when you think about it that way, that's more of the the physical and external kind of freedom. And we want to talk about that as well as the kind of spiritual and internal freedom that comes with the gospel. Both aspects of freedom come at great cost, and both come through Judgment, and we're going to see that on display here. As we read Psalm 129 this morning, as Leanna just read it, it's likely that many of you heard it, and at the end of it, some of the words were confusing, and maybe some of them sounded harsh. It's harsh language of judgment that on the surface seem opposed to a God of love. So what are we supposed to do when we come to a passage of Scripture like that, that on the surface seems harsh and judgmental? I think we dig in, we press in, we suspend disbelief for just a moment because maybe, just maybe, it's saying something better and bigger and deeper than we can at first conceive as we hear it uh, in the first pass through. As we walk through Psalm 129 this morning, we're going to learn three things about freedom. So if you're taking notes, here are those three things. First, we're going to see that we have a need for freedom everybody has a need for freedom. And secondly, we're going to see that we ha, uh, where, where our hope for freedom comes from. We have a need for freedom, but there's also hope for freedom. And finally, at the end, we're going to see a prayer for freedom. So let's look at verse one together. We'll have the words on the screen to see our need for freedom. Look with me in verse one. The psalmist writes, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, Let Israel now say, join with me. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made long their furrows. These first three verses are a reflection of a survivor. You've seen those, right? These survivor accounts, people who have gone through some traumatic experience, and they've lived to tell the tale. That's what we have here. He's gone through something severe and traumatic. And in Hebrew poetry, it's really a big deal when something is repeated twice, especially back to back, right? Did you hear he said, greatly have they afflicted me. And then he right on the heels of that says, again, let Israel now say greatly have they afflicted me. He's even encouraging the nation of Israel to join in his song because his individual story is really a part of a larger corporate story, right? If you look at the history of Israel, theirs has been marked by oppressive regimes who have enslaved them, beaten them into submission, and brought terror. If you look back at Israel's first days, they were captive in Egypt, slaves to do Pharaoh's bidding. They were constantly attacked by the Philistines as a nation. When they finally got free, they had these surrounding enemies that would constantly attack them. Finally, a couple hundred years later, they were brought to their knees by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then if that wasn't bad enough, Rome swept in and littered their roads with crosses of their crucified kinsmen as billboards to remind them of what happens when you fall out of line. That's their history. It's an oppressive one. They lived at a time when there's no such thing as the Geneva Convention. There's not even a concept of war crimes, just brutality and raw power. The psalmist is describing his personal experience with intense and graphic language. He says it started all the way back in his youth, which is sad, right? Because the youth are especially vulnerable and weak and unable to defend themselves against heavy-handed oppression, right? That's why we have to protect them. Now, when he says, greatly have they afflicted me, He's not exaggerating. He's not saying, I went through a really inconvenient time. No, that's not the word here. It's describing something traumatic, and he does so in 4K language. He says it was like they took a plow and dug a long furrow on his back. You know what a plow is? It's a heavy, pointed tool that's hitched to a work animal, and it's intended to do what? It's intended to drive through the hard ground, and leave an opening where you can plant your seed. That long opening path is called a furrow. It leaves a furrow in its wake. And the graphic reality is that it might not even be figurative language. It was actually common practice. History tells us in the ancient world for these kind of torturous things to happen, where they would li- people would literally be laid out, and they would run a plow against their back. It's to reduce a human being to dirt. Do you see that? Whether that's literal or figurative, we don't know. But what he's saying is, I went through something that was not, I'm not exaggerating, I'm not overstating. He was literally tortured. He did not merely go through a hard or an unpleasant circumstance. Now, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that most of us have not experienced that level of suffering. Now, maybe some of you have. The psalm speaks to that. But even if we have not gone through that kind of pain and oppression, even though our day-to-day is not characterized by that kind of heaviness, we should also remember that that's not necessarily the case for everybody in the world. Just consider a headline from this week in war-torn Yemen. There's a community that's right now feeling the weight of the aftermath of an airstrike that hit a bus carrying children. Now, that's just one headline among thousands. Like, you can't even read them all in one day. And justice and tragedy are everywhere. And one of the saddest things to me is that a lot of that oppression and gruesomeness goes unnoticed and unreported all over the world. We don't even have a grasp on how much kind of suffering there's going on in the world. Now, here in America, we have some of the best legal, judicial, and law enforcement in the world. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect. It's far from it. It's got serious flaws, and there's definitely room for improvement. But in comparison to other parts of the world, we should be thankful that we live here. These institutions are given by God to provide order and justice so that chaos and oppression doesn't run wild. We should be thankful that even though our systems and laws aren't perfect, they do provide a general sense of security and peace. But just because there's that general sense, it doesn't mean we should grow complacent either. Where injustice in our systems are marked by racism, inequality, economic favoritism, where injustice thrives, we should be vocal and work towards change. Find common ground to bring about uh, change so that injustice doesn't reign. Now, for us who aren't experiencing kind of this traumatic torture, let me try to bring it down to a level that we can't understand. What are some other areas where we might actually be experiencing um, pain, where we need deliverance and freedom? If you look at the numbers, domestic abuse runs rampant in our country. Spousal and child abuse are grim realities where people are in desperate need Of freedom. It's happening silently, unnoticed in homes. Just right here in Waltham. See where the home is supposed to be a place of refuge for many, and especially our women and children, it's a place of anxiety and fear and pain. Did you know this? I was kind of startled to hear this. That one in seven children in Waltham don't know where their next meal is going to come from. Let me break down those numbers for you. With a population of 62,000, and I think that's actually pretty low uh, from the last census, I think we've grown, that means there's 8,700 people under the age of 18, just in our city limits. What that means is, if you apply the math, I use a calculator, (laughs) that means over 1,200 kids right now don't know where their next meal is going to come from. There are real kids right here in Waltham who need deliverance from hunger. What about addiction to alcohol and drugs? That creates a prison for many people in our city. You know, we lose people every single year to overdose, and countless more live in a constant prison and enslavement to their addictions. I mean, we could keep going on. These are just some of the examples of external and physical oppression that we are going through as a society right now. Now, what about the internal and the spiritual? See, in a culture that has all but abandoned God, many people live their lives completely disconnected from the source of life. What do they say? I'm all set, right? I don't need God, I'm all set. And so we chase empty things to fill us, and then we come to the end of it realizing that doesn't satisfy, that doesn't fill us, and so we feel like we have to go out for more, and it leaves us more thirsty and more hungry. Did you know the Bible says that everyone who is apart from Christ is a slave to their sin? I'm not making that up. Those are words from Jesus himself. Look, we'll have the words on the screen. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 34. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And looking at him, they answered and they said, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. So pausing there for a second, they're they're experiencing a time where they they themselves have not experienced what it means to be enslaved. So they're kind of going, wait a minute, you're talking about freedom, but I I don't feel like I'm enslaved. I have citizenship, I'm able to do what I want. What are you talking about? How is it you say that you will become free, right? Which presupposes that they already are free. They don't understand the question. So Jesus answers them and says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's gentle, meek, and mild Jesus right there. He's laying it on thick. See, our need for deliverance isn't merely external and physical. It's also internal and spiritual. Everyone who practices sin, that is each and every one of us, are enslaved to it. Sin is a brutal master. Sin runs the plow over our backs and makes the furrow long. See, everyone is going to experience different levels of injustice and suffering in a world of injustice. So if we were to go around and share right now, we, we all might be talking about some different things, some, some areas where you've experienced real injustice, real oppression, and that might be different around the table. And in seasons of uh, injustice, and when you feel impressed, it's right to ask, where do we turn for justice? Where do we turn for freedom? And at the same time, we can't neglect the internal and spiritual enslavement that sin um, oppresses inside of all of us. See, sin, some sins were going to manifest themselves in more visibly destructive ways, right? Like sometimes you do things that it's pretty obvious like to the outside, or even to yourself, that you're struggling with something, right? But many sins, and I would say most sins, where the root of all sin is, it stays well hidden below the surface, killing us from the inside out like cancer. It's a silent killer. And it goes on beneath the surface, and most of us are just completely unaware of it. All of it, all of sin is destructive and it leaves us in need of freedom. That's what Jesus was trying to say. There's nobody in this room, look at me right now, who's not in need of freedom. That is a universal thing. The psalmist tells us where he found freedom as well. He says that though they afflicted him, they did not prevail. In his need for freedom, hope arrived and deliverance came. So let's look at verse 4 to see who our hope for freedom is. Look with me at verse four. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So he begins by declaring that the Lord is righteous. And listen to me, this is so key. He is proclaiming a profound and practical theological truth. A.W. Tozer, the great theologian, said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. See, what he was getting at is that what we believe about God actually informs what we think and believe about ourselves, and that drives and changes how we live and act. There's this principle inside all of us. Our being flows, our doing flows out of our being. What you do is a reflection of who you are. And so he begins by saying, the Lord is a righteous God. Now, what you have to know about the Hebrew language is the word for righteous is the same word that we would translate just and justice and as well as righteousness. See, where we in English have two different words, righteous and justice, in the Hebrew word, serek, it's the same. it's, it's, It's two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. They go hand in hand. They're inseparable. So when he says the Lord is righteous, he is saying two things at once. The Lord is righteous and just. Righteous and just. And so to say that God is righteous, it is to say that everything he does is perfectly right. Everything. He always does what's best. And check this out. He's completely perfect and separate from sin. That's what his righteousness means. Now, to say that God is just means that God has the right to punish sin. And not only does he have the right to do it, but he actually has to do it because his justice demands that evil be punished. See, if he doesn't punish injustice, he can't be just, right? If he overlooks injustice, if he just says, hey, no big deal, you wouldn't call him just. If a person was on trial, and there was no shadow of a doubt that they committed the crime, right? They're saying, no, no, I did it. Not even going to try to trick you on that one. I totally did it. And the judge said, hey, man, we all have bad days. You may go. There'd be outcry, right? You can't just overlook evil and injustice. We would say that judge is not a just judge. It is their job to punish wrongdoings and evil. How much more so with God? He can't just merely overlook sin and go, I didn't see it. No harm, no foul. Hurry up. Get out of here. He can't do that. He's perfectly just, and he sees everything. He isn't unfair. He's never cruel. He's never vindictive, temperamental, or petty. See, the psalmist is starting with good theology, and that provides guardrails for our heart. So that as he starts to experience this traumatic thing, he doesn't think that God is intending evil for him. Because a righteous and just God would never do that. See, when you begin with good theology, when you go through these harder seasons, it provides the guardrail so that you don't go off in one direction or the other thinking that God is evil and cruel. See, starting with good theology means he knows that what is intended for evil will be worked out for good for all of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. The psalmist knows that when he experiences injustice and evil, his hope is ultimately in the Lord. And then he says that when deliverance and freedom came, it was the Lord who cut the cords of the wicked. The suffering was severe and traumatic, but ultimately it did not kill him. And so he keeps going on with this plowman imagery. The psalmist says that the Lord cut the cords of the wicked, right? The plows are attached to the animals with these cords. And it was the Lord who cut those cords of the plow so that it could no longer oppress him. His freedom came as the cords were cut. Now, just like most psalms, he doesn't uh, give us specifics about his exact situation. And I think that's brilliant. Because it allows us to enter in to the psalm and fill in the details with our lives. So when we think about when we've been afflicted or oppressed, we can go, yeah, there were these times when that happened. We can fill in the details with our uh, circumstances. And it's also important to see that no matter how the psalmist was delivered, he attributes that freedom to the Lord, right? He says it was the Lord who cut the cords of the plow. See, God uses all kinds of methods and means to free his people from physical and external oppression. He may use um, police or a doctor or some kind of other um, secondary means to bring freedom and deliverance. But it's God working as the primary active force in the world to bring about our deliverance. This is why it matters for us as the people of God, to stand up to oppression and injustice in the world. Where we see a need we can meet, the church is called to enter in and meet that need. We've been given resources and energy and time by God to use for gospel good in the world. So we get to be a voice for the voiceless. There's this book by Jeremiah Johnston called Unimaginable. Highly recommend everybody to read it. He writes about how the world as you see it today would be unimaginable, unrecognizable without Christianity. He talks about how when you look through the halls of history, you'll see how Christianity has time and time again stood against the most dramatic of evils. Slavery, racism, eugenics, injustices towards women and children. We can thank Christianity for democracy, modern education, legal systems, the universal value of freedom, owe their genesis to Christianity. Hospitals, healthcare were proliferated by Christians as they demonstrated our value for human life by sacrificially caring for the sick, the handicapped, the marginalized, and the dying. When the plagues hit the empire of Rome, everybody ran for their lives. You know who ran into the city to care for the sick and the dying? Christians. It's like the first time, it it was one of those things that made them rethink, man, who are these people? That in the face of certain death, they would run right into it. Their theology impacted what they did with their heart and their minds and their hands. God has historically used people of faith to start charities, social justice movements, mental health care initiatives, and the list goes on. God has historically used his people to bring freedom and deliverance in a world of injustice and oppression. And every generation has to ask, where will I stand against the same injustices? That means we have to live with our eyes open, with our hands ready, and with eager hearts to meet the needs of the community and the world around us. Because God is going to work through his church to cut the cords of oppression and provide relief and freedom to those who are hurting and in need. When you are oppressed and afflicted, trust that God is righteous and just. He's not tricking you. He's not tempting you. He is not playing games with you. He is for his children, and evil will not prevail against you. Listen to how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. He summarizes like this. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Did you know every single form of suffering and oppression in this life It's just a tiny, small taste of death. Death comes for us all. It's the final nail in the coffin. But every time you experience the world and the way that it's not supposed to be, it's a little bitty taste and experience of death. It's not the way the world's supposed to be. And it's the reality of us living in a fallen world. Sin entered in and death was the curse. And every form of suffering is just a tiny glimpse of what is to come. But Paul says this, if you have Christ, you have the greatest treasure. The power of God is yours in Christ. And so you can be tormented. You can be afflicted in every way. Hear me, church, you will not be crushed. You will not be driven to despair. You will not be forsaken, and you will not be destroyed. Are you awake? Are you hearing this? Life is at work in you because Jesus lives in you and for you. Even if oppression and suffering ends your physical life, death does not have the final word. Our hope from physical and external and spiritual internal oppression is Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. We have victory over sin. We have deliverance from slavery because Jesus took on our death to give us his life. That's why Christians are the people of hope. Jesus is the one who cuts the cords of the plow of sin, and that's what makes us free. In that passage earlier in John 8, where I read about Jesus who said that everyone who practices sin is enslaved to sin, he goes on in a couple verses to say this, look with me, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Freedom from sin comes when Jesus cuts the cords. He is our hope. And you know why he can cut our cords? Because he was bound and he stood in our place. No one cut his cords. He let death plow right over his back. And it broke him. He did not prevail. Isaiah 53, 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. After he was pierced, after he was crushed, he rose from the dead. That's why he can cut your cords. He can cut your cords because he rose from the dead. And that's why the plowman has no hold over you. See, our freedom wasn't free, was it? It came through the costly sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's why we have hope. It's not an empty hope. It's not a wishful hope. It's not an Oprah hope. It's a hope anchored in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Come on now. Psalm 129 teaches us that we have a great need for freedom, and it also points us to our great hope. Let's look at these last final verses for this prayer for freedom. Verse (laughs) 5. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, blessings of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now here's that harsh language that we alluded to earlier. Now people who have a high sense of judgment, justice, and punishment... You hear these words and you go, amen, what's the big deal? Right? Like those who oppress people should get their just rewards, right? But I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot of people in here who are high compassion people, high forgiveness, high mercy. So when you hear these words, they seem harsh. And maybe you've been wondering, how can it be that God's people can pray for judgment? I don't want to sugarcoat anything. That's what's going on here. This is a prayer asking God to bring judgment against those who hate Zion. Now, we've seen Zion come up in these Psalms of Ascent. Remember, Zion was a mountain in Israel where the temple was built. And it was only 2,500 feet in elevation, which means it's really more like a hill. But it had more glory than Mount Everest because the temple of God was there. It was where the presence of God dwelt among his people. And Zion became symbolic for the city of God and the people of God. So the psalmist isn't asking God to bring judgment on people who hate some mountain in ancient Israel. No, 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 no. He's asking God to bring judgment on those who hate God's people. And ultimately, opposition to God's people is opposition to who? To God. He's asking that those who hate God be put to shame and turned backward. This evokes language of defeat. This is battle language of when an enemy would be defeated and have to go back home defeated, empty-handed, walking in shame. He uses poetic language to describe it. He goes on, he says, I wish that they would be like grass that grows on top of a rooftop. The word for grass here can refer to any of the grain grasses like wheat and oat. And if you know ancient Israel, you know that the rooftops were covered on top with mud. And so spring rains would come and it would soften up the the tops of the roof and and some of these grain uh, seeds would would hit the top. And it's cool and they would start to grow and it it would come up. But what would happen? The summer sun comes, scorches the grass, and it withers. That seed never had a chance to thrive and flourish. And the impact is that when the reapers come to harvest, they go away empty-handed. See, that seed represents potential value, but it's never realized. It's never realized because before it's ready for the plucking, it withers. The psalmist is saying, that's what I want it to be like for those who stand opposed to God. Though they plowed long furrows on our backs, expecting a bountiful harvest, the hope is that they would walk away empty-handed." Then Psalm 8 finishes out this word picture. He says, he prays that the the harvesters who are walking away empty-handed would not receive the traditional blessing of the harvesters. See, it was common in those days as as harvesters were coming back and forth from the fields, as you were passing by someone who's going to harvest, that you would say, hey, may the Lord bless you today. May you come away full, right? And then they would respond back to you. Yeah, may the Lord bless you too. He's saying, I hope that they walk away so empty-handed that when people see them, they go, I guess the Lord's blessing isn't on them. They've got nothing, and they want nothing to do with them. See, it's passages like this that critics of the Bible and Christianity and religion in general, they're going to point to. You're going to hear this in your workplaces. You're going to hear it on the news. They say, see, I told you so. Religion is the problem. Religion is the cause of wars and hate speech, and it leads to people with aggressive thoughts and behaviors. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. This psalm isn't even the worst of them. There's some psalms that get graphic, saying things like, for those opposed to God, I pray that God would break their teeth. It gets intense. This is fairly mild compared to some. So what do we do with these kind of bold statements that seem strange and startling, or at least out of place in a book that says God is love? Now, some have dealt with this issue by simply avoiding the question. When they get to passages like that, they go, "Uh, let's get to John 3.16. Somewhere in there it says that God's loving, right? When you come to stuff like this, just skip over it. Or if you're like Thomas Jefferson, he just took an exacto knife and cut it right out of his Bible. His Bible became so weak and frail, he actually had to take the passages he was left with and like glue them in his own little journal. See, we like to read what reinforces our already preconceived ideas about God instead of allowing the text to inform our perceptions about who God is. See, ignoring a problem doesn't make it go away, does it? See, if you read the Bible, you're going to find out that while God is a God of love, he is also a God of justice, which means he takes action against evil and injustice. That's good news for us. See, the biblical word for his action against sin is wrath. That's another unpopular word. What is wrath? See, I like how Tim Keller explains it. He says, God's wrath is not cranky explosion like a temper tantrum of a toddler. God's wrath is his settled opposition to the cancer, the sin that is eating out the whole, eating out holes inside of the human race that he loves with his whole being. When the cancer surgeon goes after the cancer, it's his wrath against it. It's a settled opposition to saying we are going to fight this thing. We will not let it kill you he's taking wrath against cancer just like god takes wrath against sin you can't solve the problem by pitting the god of the old testament against the god of the new testament he is the same yesterday today and tomorrow he didn't go into anger management therapy between the old testament and the new testament okay If you read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're gonna see in both that God is a God who fiercely loves, patiently loves, and he's a God who judges justly against evil. Let me suggest a different path for us today. The Bible teaches that it is entirely appropriate to have a desire for God to reckon evil. We should actually want to see evil eradicated from the world, and it's right for God's people to ask him to do it. Here's why. God doesn't judge like you and I judge. God isn't blind to the things that we are blinded by. He is judging perfectly without bias and with no blind spots. He alone can actually bring about just justice so that the greater thing emerges, peace. And the aftermath of God's justice is his peace. So when we're asking for God to bring judgment against sin, it's like us asking God, bring peace. Mend the world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. Make it to the way it's supposed to be. Every desire to have evil done away with is actually a desire for peace, for the brokenness to be mended and for things to go back to the way that they are supposed to be. Now here's where the tension builds for the Christian. Let's suppose you agree with me that God bringing judgment against opposition and and, and injustice is a good thing. And we see that the the righteousness in God is removing external oppression so that it can't harm us and oppose us as well as innocent other people, right? Say you get on board with that and you go, that is a good thing when God removes injustice in the world. That he moves to see it such that there's no um, evil and injustice, But in that moment, we're asking for God to do something that's external from us, right? We're looking out and saying, look, there's injustice. God, deal with it. I'm over here. God, you deal with that injustice over there. It could be dealt with apart from me because it's external from me. But how does God deal with the oppression and injustice that's inside of us? What about the cancer, the sin that's eating a hole in us? How does God get rid of that without cutting me and hurting me? And let me take it a little bit further. What if I'm honest and I realize that I've been complicit in my sin? See, when you get cancer, most of the time it's not because you've done anything to cause it, right? I mean, sometimes. But let's just say for the sake of the argument, we're talking about sin. I've actually been an active participant in it. It did not overwhelm me to the point where I couldn't resist actually had times in my life where i have willingly even joyfully participated in sin i hope i'm not the only one who can be honest today i come to realize that though it's hard to say i am the cancer that's eating a hole inside of me so how does god deal with that how does god get rid of that evil without getting rid of me How do I survive God's wrath against sin and evil when there's blood on my hands? See, we find ourselves right back to verse 4, hoping that God will cut the cords of sin without cutting me. And we realize that God in his grace has forgiven everyone who trusts in him. Those who recognize that they're part of the problem will find forgiveness will find forgiveness. Those who ask God to forgive them will find that God's love is poured into your hearts and you're given grace instead of what you deserve. Now, like I said earlier, our forgiveness doesn't mean that God overlooks or just kind of winks at sin. He has to judge it. But for the Christian, what that means is Jesus has taken the judgment that you and I deserved. See, again, we see forgiveness Freedom comes through judgment. We're forgiven because our debt, and it was a real debt, is paid in full, not because God stops being just. And when you've been forgiven like that, you find now that you can forgive others who sin against you. So here's that tension. Here's how you find true freedom. See, on the one hand, it's right for us to desire God's justice and peace and righteousness to eradicate evil and injustice in the world. That's right. At the same time, when we meet people who oppose God, who oppose the gospel, who hate Zion, we should follow Jesus who defeated evil through forgiveness and love. See, when you've been forgiven much, you are now free to give that kind of freedom. When you've received forgiveness and love, guess what you have to give? Forgiveness and love. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. We're almost done. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, listen, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You can forgive. You know why? For the believer, God's love has been poured into your heart, not sprinkled, not like uh, uh, in, in small dough. It's been poured into your heart, overflowing. God's not stingy with his love, so you can freely give it to others. We have to remember that ultimately we live by the grace of a steadfastly loving God who extends that grace to anyone who would receive it. Those who understand that grace can look at someone oppressing them and saying, if it weren't for the grace of God in my life, I could be there too with my hand to the plow. See, there is a truth to rally that those who hate the gospel, those who oppose God, those who hate Zion will one day be put to shame. The psalmist is essentially just asking God to do what God has already promised that he's going to do. God has promised he's going to rid the earth of evil. And so when we pray and ask God to do it, we're just simply calling God to be faithful to his promises. And those who oppose God will one day confront reality and they will experience God's just wrath for sin. Now that's a sobering and wildly unpopular truth on our culture. But for the Christian, we can stand in the in the tension of at the same time desiring evil to be judged and desire that oppressors see the weight of their sin and find forgiveness. Those aren't mutually opposed to one another. The Christian says yes to both. God judge sin justly according to your perfect righteousness, and we can say God have mercy on them. For they know not what they do. I hope you'll see this psalm as a model for us. It's an encouragement when you're going through seasons of suffering and trial to stand firm. It's a beacon of truth for us to remember that God is righteous and just and that He he alone is who we look to for freedom from our affliction. This psalm is an anchor uh, for our hope that Jesus will be the one who cuts the cords of oppression. And it tells us that we can take our raw and uncensored and hard emotions and we can come to God and be gut-level honest with him. I love that about the Psalms. You don't have to have forgiveness on the forefront of your heart when you go to God. This Psalm says it's okay to not be okay. This Psalm warns us not to take vengeance into our own hands, but to trust that God will judge justly and he'll do it perfectly. Vengeance is not your job, Christian. It is not. It's God's job. So that frees us to be a people marked by forgiveness and love. We have to remember that though our sins may be categorically different than those who are oppressing us, if we understand righteousness and justice, we realize that my sin is equally deserving of judgment. And if it weren't for his grace, we would fall subject to his wrath as well. But because of the grace of God, Because of the grace of Jesus, he laid down for us all to be trampled by the plow of sin so that we could be healed and mended and walk in righteousness. Seven Mile Road, let's be a church marked by that kind of love and forgiveness, pointing people to Jesus who alone can forgive and redeem them.